Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is the third and final part of my interview with Chris Topo Topham, RAF fighter pilot and F-117 exchange pilot. Chris, thanks for coming on the channel. If you enjoyed the interview with Chris and you are a fan of progressive rock, please take a look at his website for his record label, Plain Groovy. The link is in the description. My next interviews have already been recorded. They're with Huggy Huggins, U-2 pilot. I think maybe the, the all-time high U-2 pilot. And if you want to know when they've been published, please make sure you're subscribed and that that bell icon is clicked. Enjoy. Did you do any, um, I think I think you guys call them familiarization uh, type flying in, in their IRAF where you'll, some another type of aeroplane will come and fly with you so that they can see how you operate, you know, see what, you know, how tricky you might be to, you know, try and fly against. Um, did you ever do any of that, any integration with other platforms? I didn't do any. I know that the, the 117s went and did red flag a couple of times, I believe, took part in missions um, so that the other aircraft could see whether they could spot it. Uh, and I think with mixed results, uh, I, that may have been just after my time, now that I think about it, certainly after we moved from uh, moved down um, down to Holloman. So I think... I think that was probably came just after my time. What, what prompted the move to Holloman? Cost, probably. I mean, we had uh, three, three and a half thousand uh, people up at Tonopah who were uh, having to go up. And so typically we'd go up on a Monday afternoon and back on a Friday, uh, Friday morning. Um, and American Transair had the contract to do that. Uh, we were on old 727s, I think. And I, I heard a rumor that was costing $350 million a year just to just to move all those people, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. And then there were, you know, loads of daily flights because there were some people doing different shifts. Um, so there was that. We were accommodated up there. We were fed when we were up there. Um, it, it was It was remote living. And so much uh, much easier uh, and then we were parented by nellis air force base so i guess much easier logistically uh, but almost certainly financial i assume i don't think that it was to free tonopar up for something else i think tonopar went quiet for a while I, I heard rumors that it got busy again but but um i think it i think it all went quiet after that so it wasn't it wasn't to make way for something else um, but what i do recall was that when I when we first got out there when we were flying at night uh, every, everything else was 
stuck on the ground. And there were a couple of times by the time I left Tonopah that we were kept on the ground for something else that was flying around. So no idea what that was. Wow. Did it make any difference to you than uh, going to New Mexico? Uh, that's, that's where Holloman is, right? New Mexico. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was down um, about an hour and a half from El Paso, so north of El Paso and uh, east of Las Cruces, just in the foothills of the of the mountains. It's a beautiful area. Um, well, it meant I got home every day, which was which was good. We were still doing uh, so. The, we were still primarily doing night flying, so there'd be one day shift, one day wave, and then one night wave every day. Um, uh, so it was it was um, better domestically from that point of view. Although it was it was still a sort of afternoon evening night operation um the accommodation was uh somewhat different um at, up at tonopah we had a whole row of sort of individual shelters there was a bit less of individual there were there were hangars with um groups of airplanes in um but no it was and it was it was more of a regular base so you could there was a mcdonald's on the base and stuff like that so it was all it was all much more normal. When when you left Tonopah, then, so to, just going back to you know you saying you've been kept on the ground. Obviously, the south side of Tonopah was where the MIGs were, and until they sort of shut that program down in the, the mid eight, well, nineteen eighty eight, April eighty eight is when they shut that yeah. down. Um, did you know about that history? Did you know what had replaced it? Was it was there any activity there? They 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 say stay away from the Not south the, side or no? Just there was never any reason to go over there. Hmm. Um, we had. Um, I've got it kicking around somewhere. I've got the. I've got the. Um, the sort of diversion book we had with all the Groom Lake. Groom Lake information. But if you ever went to Groom Lake, you never saw anything because because you weren't read into those programs. So the the doors would stay closed. It was the same for anyone coming to Tonopah. Park. Mm. If, if anything diverted in, the doors just stay closed. And as I explained about Ronnie the driver, you know that the security was that good. So. Um, were they happy for yeah, you? Yeah, were they happy for you to go, for, for you to go to groom? If I'd had to, yeah, I didn't. I I, I didn't, but there would be no problem. It was, it was our sort of number one diversion. So yeah. yeah, yeah. But the the I mean, it was there was just me. It was me and, and three and a half thousand foreigners. And uh, I remember I remember walking to the to the um, dining room one day, and a couple of um, tech sergeants coming towards me and they're sort of chatting away and they, they see me walking towards them and they just sort of look at me and nod and they get about uh, 10 feet behind me and uh, am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yeah. Okay, so uh, they get about 10 feet past me and then I, I hear one of them say, I don't know if we salute the fucker. <laughs> so I turn around and I said, uh, excuse me, and they turn around and I said, uh, the fucker will be saluted. <laughs> Word with drought like you would. So yeah, it didn't take it didn't take long to work out who I was. You you sort of referenced the you know the the total dominance of the one seventeen in the skies of Iraq then through early nineteen ninety one, um, and much the same happened again in the Balkans in the mid mid nineties. Um, but of course, infamously yeah. or famously, depending on which side of the the divide you are, um, the Yugoslavs managed to down an F-117. And um, this is going to be after your time. And you've already explained that once you're, yeah. once you're out the program, you're out the program. So I, I don't expect you to 
sort of uh, necessarily have any particular insight. But what do you know about that? And you know, can you offer a view on I don't, how it happened? I don't know anything about it at all. Um, but my assumption would be one of the, uh, and it's probably here in the checklist somewhere, but one of the worst things that could happen would be a hydraulic snag with the Bombay doors. Um, so the, they, the process of them opening, allowing the weapon to come out and then closing again was all automatic. And if something went wrong hydraulically there or a, or a, a jack jammed or something like that, and if the Bombay doors stayed open, you'd be as visible as any other airplane. Mm. And I can, uh, that would be my number one suggested scenario for what could have happened there. Um, is there any yeah. um, credence to some of the theories that abound, which is that the routes were very predictable? So the same routes were chosen, same ingress altitudes. Um, would, would that? I would hope not, because that would be that would be horribly complacent. Um, I, 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 I have no idea. I haven't heard anything about that. But it certainly wouldn't have happened while I was there. Um, that that just wouldn't have been allowed to happen. That 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 would that would be a level of complacency that that shouldn't happen in an operation like that. I suppose that is a valid question, isn't it? When when you are that good and you have that much technical and um, uh, sort of tactical capability. What do you, what is it that keeps you on your toes? What is it that makes sure that complacency doesn't creep in? Uh, I don't know. I, I do. It, it it kind of um, my my for me personally, my whole flying career, I've always not questioned things, but I've always made sure that that things are being done right. So, for example, um, and once again, it, it sounds odd, but it's got a bit vague now, but we, 10, 12 years ago, however long ago it was, uh, I was given a route to go down to Delhi. And uh, I'd said, you know, that doesn't look quite right. And it was going around, uh, it, it was going over the, the top edge of Ukraine. And at the time, there was a, there was a no-go zone. And, uh, and then when we got airborne, um, air traffic tried to give us a direct routing. So we, we requested from flight planning a dogleg to go around this thing. And they tried to give us direct routing across. And I think either the next night or the, or the night after that was, was when the um, Korean airplane got shot down. Um, so there are, you know, there, there are, um, there are things that get your, get the hairs rising on the back of your neck. Mm. Um, uh, just flying has never been something that I would ever be complacent about. Um, I remember years ago when I was um, doing the flying instructor thing, um, I did a thing called the Wright Jubilee Trophy, which was um, the training commands uh, aerobatics competition. And the person who won that um, ended up doing air shows for, for the summer for on behalf of training command and i i did a display in the in the jet problem smart five and then we were going out to do one practice uh sort of at the end of the flying day so maybe five o'clock in the evening and going out and getting airborne and realizing that the pin in the ejector seat one of the pins was still in place and i came straight back round and landed and my boss who was my uh, supervisor had he'd stayed in all afternoon to do the practice and he was a bit grumpy 
and he said, you know, what the hell's going on? What? And I said, boss, I, I, you know, I left the pin in. And he said, yeah, but I said, something not right. I, that's not what I would do. That's, you know, something's distracting me. I have no idea what. Um, but but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna turn on do the the display. And I think one, you know, one other, one other time I I overstressed the flaps, and it was just because I'd got you know a couple hundred feet below a height that I was supposed to be at, and. I could have pulled out, but I, I overstressed the airplane. And he came back and said, yeah, how can you do that? I said, well, you know, it's, it's an airplane. Yeah, it's overstressed, but but I'm here. <laughs> I think so the, the, there is that instinct of self-preservation, but there's also, there's also um, I guess, um, just a desire to do the job uh, the best that you can do it, really. And and uh, if you're always looking at the various what-ifs, it, it, it certainly keeps your mind active as well. Mm. Just before we talk then about you, you leaving that and coming back to the UK, um, one of the things that you have with aircraft that have radars and um, you know, you know, sophisticated suites of computers running them is you get you know flight programs, operational flight programs, software loads that come in and they, they change them to make the airplane more capable. Um, it sounds like the, the 117 was very simple um, in, in, in terms of uh, the systems. The, the technology that kept it stealthy was, I suppose you know, working from day one, I would imagine it was, you know, it sounds like it was as good the day that it entered service as it, as it probably was the day that it left. So what in the three years that you were there, what did you see them do to the aeroplane to improve it? Was, you know, were improvements abound or, you know, was it, was it on a plateau? There were, there were various things that happened while I was there. Um, one of the things, for example, because we would go through, um, there'd be, damage from the drag chutes and it was it was a bit of a, a pain them having to be repacked um we had brakes that were supposed to be good enough to stop the airplane without needing to use the drag chutes um but every time anyone ever did that the brakes would end up catching fire and people say well that's not right and it took a long time but eventually said so look it's, it's because there's there's burnt on um grease on there and if we accept that you know, it's it's going to take a while. To and and they, they did trials for about three months on, on one airplane. And sure enough, it, it all sorted itself out. So then we were able to do non-drag chute landings, which was a, uh, a big improvement. Um, that That's just one small thing. There was, uh, I can't remember, this sounds really stupid, but I really can't remember whether the moving map display that we had was monochromatic when I started and colour by the time I left. Or whether color came in just after. I think it. I think it came in while I was there, and, and that was that would that would have been very because of course the next thing is I then went on to the Airbus where it was color. So I can't remember whether that was a that was a thing, but I think it was. I think maybe about halfway through. Um, not specifically anything else. There, there were various things they did though, because part of the whole exchange program, and although there wasn't technically anyone who I exchanged with, it still came under the umbrella of the exchange program. One of the things that um, the exchange program works with, uh, and we do it within within the Air Force as well, so Jaguar pilots will go off and fly Harriers for, for a tour, and it's just the interchange of ideas within the various um, different aspects of the force. Um, because good ideas can come from anywhere. And one of the things that I really liked about the stealth operation was that you would have a, a tech sergeant 
uh, and an airplane would be his airplane. So when I got my name on the side of one of the airplanes, I had my tech sergeant and he was the expert in that airplane because they were all they were all individual. They'd all have their little foibles and he knew exactly. And I'd come back from a trip and I'd say, OK, this happened. He goes, oh, yeah, that happened you know, 15 months ago and it was such and such. Or if there was going to be a bombing competition, uh, I would generally be put into my airplane. Um, and so it behoved me to have it in as good a shape as, as it could possibly be. So I, I had a great rapport with, uh, with the guys who, who worked on my airplane. And, and that didn't happen in the Air Force. With the centralized servicing, it, it, it wasn't done the same way. It was probably more manpower intensive. Um, but it was that was certainly one of the things when I got debriefed when I came back. One of the things I said that I thought was uh, on, on the plus side. On the minus side, they had a thing. Um, so I, I ended up running the squadron for a while, not a very short while, uh, while the boss and, and uh, ops officers were on leave. And I had to go. So what you would have, you'd have a meeting on a Thursday, which was the planning the scheduling meeting. And at the scheduling meeting, uh, we would get given the aircraft allocation for the following week for the slots that we'd already bid for, or the flying program that we'd given to the engineers the week before. Uh, and then we would give them the flying program that we wanted to fly the following week. And tied in with all the stuff that we got given back were uh, the various statuses of, of airplanes that weren't being used for the flying program, when they were doing checks and when they were expected to be available. And there'd be maybe four or five, three or four um, serviceable airplanes that weren't being used just because they weren't needed. Um, and so that, so that happened on Thursday. On the Monday, I go into, uh, I, I go into work and uh, the first state, first wave goes off and uh, the airplanes come back. And then there's a gap, obviously, um, maintenance and, and turnaround and stuff. And for the second wave, they say, okay, boss, uh, we're four airplanes down for the second wave. Uh, I said, oh, what's going on? They said, well, um, unserviceable this, unserviceable I said, okay, but we've, we've got those four airplanes there that are serviceable. Yeah, yeah. I said, uh, okay, well, let's put those in for the, the second wave then. Uh, well, no, we, we don't know we do that. I said, why not? I said, well, we take an ops deviation for that. I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, it's, a, it's an ops deviation. If we if we um, divert from the, from the program that we planned, we we take a hit for it because it meant that we didn't plan properly. So no, it just means the airplanes have gone. So, anyway, so we, we did that next night. And that, that week we flew more, we, we fulfilled more of the, the task than we had done for, for ages. So I seemed very pleased with myself. And at the end of the week, I got a bollocking, or a start of bollocking, from the base commander who said uh, he'd never seen such bad ops deviations. And what it's to do with is a thing, I, I, I'm pretty certain, it's a thing called total quality management. Have you ever come mm, across this? Heard of it. T, T, TQM. So what it is, uh, and Virgin use it, um, same sort of thing. What it is, is you choose things to measure that by improving them, you improve the overall processes. And when it's employed properly, it's brilliant because you, you spot something that needs improving and you, you start measuring it and people recognize. So uh, at Virgin, for example, we had a, a bit of a thing with on-time performance and so recognized it needed improving. So we started looking at various aspects of it and worked out what it was that was causing it to fail. But OT, so OTP, it's quite a complicated thing. And so the squadrons were, I think they each sent 
a person, or maybe the base sent a person, to do the full course, which was expensive and quite long. And they know everything about OTP. Uh, sorry, about uh, TQM, Total Quality Management. But they then get tasked to then teach that to everybody who needs to use it, all the people uh, in, the, in the sort of higher echelons. And they then get a sort of abridged version of it. And they then try to employ it, and they choose things to measure. But if you're choosing to measure a thing that has impact on your operational capability, I, I just thought that was a bit mad. And the problem was, in the, in the Air Force, you had the squadron boss, who would be a wing commander, and he would have his uh, Sengo, senior engineering officer, who would be a squadron leader who was under him, and then a bunch of flight lieutenants. And he'd have his squadron leader, flight commanders, and a bunch of flight lieutenants. In the American Air Force, we've got our squadron boss, who is a lieutenant colonel, but the boss of engineering is a full colonel. And so the boss can't say to the engineers, sort out my bloody airplanes you know so um total quality quality management <coughs> excuse me was didn't seem to be working to me because um so there was there was the gulf war and then uh, everybody came back and they'd all they'd obviously all been away for a long time i think they were away for six months or so um so thereafter um our primary job kind of became air shows um, because the public, the American public wanted to see this airplane that had been so successful and where their tax dollars had gone and all this sort of thing. So air shows became a thing. And we, we, were still, we still maintained a, a detachment uh, out, at, um, uh, out in Saudi Arabia uh, of a certain number of airplanes, a certain number of pilots. And they were, they were rotating every three or four months, three months, I think. Um, but I wasn't going to go and do that. So when... What, because the guys who were there, um, there were other things going on. So if you remember, there was a the whole Black Hawk Down thing going on in Somalia. Mm. And there was also potentially, I think, you know, some still some potential issues with Libya. So the airplanes that were out there, if, if it had been solely to do with um, the Iraq issue, I don't think there would have been a problem. But because these, there were these other potential things that the aircraft could be used for, they weren't going to send me out there. And I said, okay, if that's happening, then then if there's air shows in wherever it is, wherever it is in America that no one wants to go to, I will go and do them because you know because everyone gets their weekends at home, and I've I've had you know these six months, so I'm not doing these three months away. So if I have the odd weekend away, that's fine. So I did I did lots of air shows in that time. Uh, we moved down to Holloman, and that carried on, and the deployments kept on going. And then one day my boss came out, he said, Chris, I hate to have to say this, but um, we think we're going to have to move you to the um, to the training squadron, the 417th, uh, rather than an operational squadron. I said, well, what's going on? And he said, well, um, you're, you're a major, and you're fulfilling the job of a major, but we're now having to rotate another major and, and it's it's going to put too much of a strain because we can't send you as part of the rotation to Saudi Arabia and I said okay I, I completely understand that but can you give me a couple of days to try and sort it out so I rang back the, rang the embassy and I said look you're about to lose the best job in because I think I think I'm right almost all uh, exchange jobs are on training units basically um, 
Whereas this is our operational squadron. I said, you're about to lose the, the, the operational um, squadron job. Um, and the Air Commodore said, Chris, leave it with me. I'll see what I can do. And uh, I got a phone call back. on That was that was maybe Tuesday. The Wednesday, I got a phone call saying, tomorrow morning, there's going to be a conversation between uh, Major and Bush uh, about you. And we're, we're going to try and get permission for you to go. And Thursday afternoon, I got a phone call saying, it's all approved. You can go. And I went and saw the boss and said, it's approved. I can go. And on the Monday, I was off to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> no messy. So that, um, that's how, that's how higher level, um, got involved, which, which amazed me, mm. but, um, it worked. And, and so I went and did, uh, my deployment out to Saudi Arabia. Did anything interesting happen while you were there? Any, uh, any combat? Uh, very, very, very nearly. Um, there were still the odd border incursions going on or, or uh, infringements of the no-fly zone. And it was fairly relaxed the, the whole of the three months, right until the very last week. And um, it was a, it, getting used to... So the, the, um, the infrared picture was very different out there because of the different temperature profile. So it took some weeks to get used to the types of things you saw. The, the, you know, the, the, there wasn't that much air conditioning around, so there weren't a lot of really cold things, basically. Um, so right towards the end of our deployment out there, um, the, the next guys were coming out, but uh, things started to get very tense, and it looked as though we were going to have to go and um, do a, a do a mission. And so we, but we only needed a certain number of pilots for that. I can't remember how many. It might, I think it was four. So they, um, it might have even been three. So this showed the value of the Top Gun competitions. So all the, so we'd been running a Top Gun competition while we were out there, and uh, I was top of the Top Gun competition while we were out there. And so I had to stay out there um, until the next team were, were up to operational speed. Um, and I, as I said, I think there were four of us ended up staying um, and we were allocated targets in sort of order of difficulty. Um, and I, I was allocated this target, which was which was going to be pretty demanding, but pretty important. Um, and what they were, it was it was an airfield um, outside the no fly zone. So it was it was um, south of the southern no fly zone. Um, and ultimately, there was an attack on it. So, so we ended up going home about a week or maybe 10 days later than expected, which, of course, after you've been out there for a whole bunch of months, was a bit of a disappointment. But once again, you know, you, you, you don't join the military to duck out of stuff. So if that's what they wanted me to do, and, and demonstrably, the, the, the Top Gun competition was, was probably the way to decide who was going to stay. So... Um, we were out there for that time, and then we had to work out how to get home. And uh, they said, "Okay, well, you, you can now go, but we don't know really how we're going to get with you." And I ended up phoning around all morning, and I found a C five that was coming to a kind of Taif, I think it was. So um, we had to get to Taif, which we could do on a Hercules. So we hitched a ride in a Hercules to there. This aeroplane had been all the way to Somalia and it was now on its way back and going back to um, 
Dover on the East Coast. Um, and so we, uh, and I'd spoken to them, they said, yeah, we'll have, the, we'll have the seats. It'll be fairly basic, but we can get you back. And said, yeah, we'd love to. So we all went over there, got this thing. The only thing that was on this C5 was one aircraft tire, enormous aircraft tire. That was all that was in there for the freight. And uh, we got airborne and, and uh, popped up to the cockpit and, and said to him, what's, what's the plan? It's a long old flight. And he said, yeah, well, we, we've got one air-to-air refueling slot. Um, just off the um, just off the coast of Spain, there's a, a KC-10 going to come up from um, Zaragoza to refuel us. And I said, "Look, even if I'm asleep, please wake me up. I'd just love to see that uh, a, a galaxy refueling from a KC-10." Uh, so I, I got up and watched that, which was pretty spectacular. And then we uh, we landed at Dover. They'd already sorted out our aircraft tickets, and uh, Americans just lovely. So we got a I can't remember who, Delta maybe, we flew back. And of course, we'd been alcohol-free for whatever, three, three and a half months. Um, and we're still in our, our sort of um, sand-coloured flying suits and uh, in economy down the back of the airplane. And the hosties said, you know, come down the back galley. And they were just plying us with beer <laughs> and saying thank you for doing what you do, which was just lovely of them. Yeah. Um, so that was so just a bit delayed getting home. Did you... Um were you disappointed then you didn't get to fly that that, that mission? No, not really. It, it was... Um, and I, I seem to remember that hardly anyone was able to drop because there was a lot of cloud. Because the, the one thing about the 117, and part of, part of the remit with the whole thing was that I think the Americans were offering it to us. And I think part of the reason they wanted... Um, some of an engineering degree to go was because there was potentially that we were being offered it. And, but it it was pretty obvious from a very early stage that it's not really suited to most most um, theatres of operation um, because without without with cloud cover you, you can't find the target. Hmm. So um, and I, I seem to recall that on on that particular night they launched but. Uh, no one was able to drop anything anyway because it was uh, there was too much cloud around. Um, so no, but I, I I I didn't feel any dissatisfaction about about anything really. You know, I I'd, I came away from the 117 uh, back to the UK, and um, whereas four years earlier I'd been planning to leave the Air Force, and, and now I was looking at it, I was still looking at really the same sort of calculation because that counted as my squadron leader flight commander tour. I was then, if I stayed in the Air Force, I was then definitely going to have to come back and do a desk job. Uh, if I was going to get promoted, which I would hope I would have been, I was going to have to do staff college for a year at some stage. And then as a wing commander, I would be doing a, a flying tour and a ground tour, but not necessarily in that order. So I may end up doing my ground tour and my flight tour. So I was looking at potentially five years on the ground before I was going to fly again. And, and so it, for me, it was a bit of a no-brainer. Um, that I would I would then take my option to leave at, at age 38. So that's uh, and with those little extra extensions that I got to the tour because of flying the T38 and, and moving to Holland, I, I had less than a year to go when I when I came back to the UK. So you got straight out? Uh, no, I thought actually I thought I would. There was there was a lot of talk about how you know once you're within a year you could you could request go out. And I, I asked the question. Um, uh, to which I got the answer, well, no, because there's all this stuff going on and stuff going on in Bosnia and, and you'll probably end up in a 
in a tent out there somewhere. I think, bloody hell. As it was, I came back and ended up in, uh, they put us in some amazing five-star hotel near Vicenza in North Italy. And I was, I was running stuff from the, um, from the operations center there. Tasking the tasking the jaguars and oh, the tornadoes down at Joya. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I did that for four months. Okay. Yeah. God, that's another interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no more, Steve. <laughs> so, did, did you? Well, that was that was. It was such a nice place, actually. That when uh, when I got married to Katrina, we went and stayed there for our honeymoon. It, it, it was the most beautiful hotel. Wow. Yeah. Did you? Um... Did you go straight to the airlines then? Did you take a break? What did you do? Um, I, I was in... So when you come back from exchange tour, you, you have to have six weeks off. So I got my six weeks off. And then I went straight out to uh, to Vicenza. So that would have April to August. And approaching the end of July... I got to finally go to, I had a, a, a day spare. So I went down to Joya to go and have a night out with the guys that I've been doing the task with and all my mates on the Jaguar and a, a bunch of tornado guys. And we all went out for a pizza. And the guys were saying, you know, you're coming towards the end of your, your time top. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm hoping to join Virgin. You know, I'd spoken to them about a year ago and they'd said, you know, when it got to towards the end of my tour, get in touch. They said, well, that's gone down the toilet there. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, they're not hiring anymore. What? He said, no, their recruiting stopped. Uh, you know, a couple of guys and, and one of the guys said, yeah, yeah, I, I did an interview last week and they've got like one more one more batch of interviews and that's it. That's all they're doing. And, and then stopping recruiting. Said, oh, God. So I got back to Vicenza and I phoned um, a guy called Peter Ford, who was the guy in charge of recruiting. And I'd spoken to him about a year earlier. Uh, so I said, Peter, you know, you, you asked me to get in touch when I was approaching the end of my talk. He said, oh, yeah, okay, Nice to speak to you. And uh, I said, yes, so I'm, I'm in Italy at the moment, but I, um, I just wonder whether I should send you an updated CV. He said, oh, yeah, you can do that. I said, well, if you've got a fax number, I'll do that. He said, no, no, there's no need for that. Just, you know, uh, chuck it in the post and it'll be fine. I said, well, you know, I'm in Italy. He said, no, no, no. And you know when you're you're kind of getting the brush off on the on the, on the phone. And uh, I I'd I, I never thought I was going to do this, but I did. Um, quite shamelessly, because uh, he sort of said, well, oh, well, you know, what what are you updating it with? What's going on? I said, well, you may remember I was flying the stealth fighter out in, in America, at the, uh, the 117. He goes, oh, oh yeah, yes. He said, yes, that guy. He said, just a second. He said, um, what are you doing this Friday? And I said, well, um, I don't know. This is like a Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, I said, well, I'm not sure. He said, well, um, we can probably squeeze you in. There's one interview. If you can come up on Friday as an interview panel. And I said, well, um, I said, if, if we're not at war, I probably can. I'll, I'll find out. He said, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah, do that. And I said, well, um, but I haven't got a suit here. I haven't got my log books. He said, oh, don't worry about that. So so um, I went and saw my boss, and he said the same thing. He said, if we're not at war, you can go. And I said, Look, I'll, I'll just go for the day and be back. So I flew over on the Thursday night, got there on the Friday, um, this is this is going to take a couple of minutes, but it, it's really weird. Um, got there on the Friday. Uh, my wife had come down from Norwich, so she had bought me a suit and she'd bought my logbooks. And so I went in with with all the stuff and um, did the interview panel. There were a, a bunch of people there. Uh, one of them asked me why I wanted to join Virgin, and you can see I've, I've collected music my whole life. And 
I said, it's mainly for the discount in the Virgin Megastore. <laughs> There's a 35% discount for stuff. I said, no, I'm doing this. And, and I explained why I wanted to join Virgin. That's fine. And the only thing that caught me was um, one of the guys in the end, a pilot, asked me a, a technical question. I can't remember what it was. It's something to do with performance. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? Not only do I not know the answer to that question, but I absolutely know that I've never known the answer to that question. And I've just had a horrible realization. Can you give me my logbooks back? This is just unbelievable. So I got my logbooks back and, and all my documentation. And I said, I can't believe this. I, I've only got Perf E. I haven't got Perf A. Um, Perf A being what you need for, for flying big airliners. Um, and the reason was, if you remember in the, the, the last chunk of the interview we did, when the Gulf War thing was coming up, I was going through my civilian licenses. And when old Mr. Rodette said to me, look, when you get back, you need to do those things. I, I came back from, uh, from Oman and I only had four weeks before I was then going out to America. And in that time, I had to do the last two technical exams and my Perf exam. And Perf A is really difficult, whereas Perf E is just a spot the dot, 10 questions, you know, multiple choice, spot the dot thing. So this is all coming flooding back to me and it seemed really stupid at the time that I could have forgotten that I hadn't done Perf A but I hadn't done Perf A I said I can't believe it I'm, I've just wasted your time I'm, I'm, I haven't done Perf A that's why I don't know the answer to the question he goes ah that's alright you don't need to have that done until um, when would it be when you do your instrument rating in the simulator so you've got about three or four months I couldn't believe it just it seems so relaxed and back then those were in the days where it really was a question of if you got the interview it was for you to talk yourself out of it hmm. and it very much became could you bear to sit next to this guy for seven hours or eight hours on the way to new york or or not and that, that's what it was that's what it was down to really but yes i god i i, just, I, I went hot and cold it's horrible feeling So you did leave the RAF. You went and flew for Virgin then, and you're now. Yeah. You are. We talked about this last time. You're sort of now somewhere between retiring and retired. Is that correct? I mean, with the coronavirus, I guess there's not much flying happening anyway. And there's not. No, I'm at the moment. I've I've damaged my hand. Um, I sliced through a tendon in my finger, and uh, I I need another operation to get the finger working so I can go back to flying. But they've suspended all non. Um, essential operations. So I'm probably not going to get my finger fixed until next year, and I retire the year after. So I, I, I think my flying career has come to an end. And actually, I, I don't have any regrets at all about that. Um, it, it would have been nice to have a sort of farewell flight, but actually it doesn't matter that much. I, I've done everything I could possibly have wanted to do and, and loved every minute of it, literally every, even, even you know when things got you know, a bit difficult and it's just been a fantastic career highly recommended you run plain groovy which is a record label yeah yeah, yeah. so so a lot of a lot of sort of uh crusty old fighter pilots end up going off flying tiger moths and things like that but you're producing records unitopia artificial that's uh coming out next month boys and girls yeah um I, I've been doing it. I've, I've collected music my whole life. I went to a, I went to a boys' public school, 
And uh, one of the things we did, we had a thing called Rock Sock, a rock society. Um, and we paid something like 35p a term for this thing. And we used to have rock bands. And the school didn't particularly like it. And they said, look, if you ever make a loss, that's it. We, we it, it stops. But we never did make a loss. We were booking bands for 50 pounds a time. And it was all, so we had Genesis played at our school. Really? Um, between, the, between Trespass and Nursery Ground, we had Greenslade and Camel and uh, all these magma and comas all these amazing progressive rock bands came and played at our school and um i've i've been a fan of that type of music ever since what school was it uh, it's called oundle up near oh, peterborough yeah. um yeah so it, it was it was the most fantastic uh most fantastic time and so that gave me this this love of music and then through various ways a lot to do with flying i've met musicians i know quite a lot of musicians and there are a couple of them that i'd wanted to see their albums out on vinyl and there's one particular pal of mine i was chatting to him on skype he lives in america and i said look have you got anywhere with getting the the man album out on vinyl he said oh fucking hell top i'm just way too busy so if, if you can organize it that'd be great so i was doing a trip to la the next day and for the whole two days i was just ringing around existing record labels and do you know with um with uh, poems do you know what a vanity project is or you publish it yourself, or something like that? Kind of. Well, basically, uh, a firm will come to you and say, look, we'll publish your poems for you. And, you know, you get 250 copies of it pressed, and it, it costs you 3,000 quid, and it, it just costs you. No one buys it, and, and it's a vanity project. And it became very obvious that any existing record label, it would be like a vanity project for, for Francis's album, because although, um, you know, we'd have to basically pay a label to, to put it out. And that year, I, it was the only year that I did loads of overtime for Virgin, and I did lots of overtime and got a decent sack of money. And it came through in the August, I think. And I said to Katrina, look, I've just got this enormous paycheck from Virgin. I said, you know, I could take it off the mortgage, but what I'd really like to do is start a record label. And she, God bless her, she said, it's your money, do what you want for oh, it. Oh, wow. So, so, so I started the label, and my mate Hazy Dave up in uh, Milwaukee came up roughly with the name Playing Groovy, and I went to a a firm for a logo, um, who they basically it cost me something like eighty bucks, and they put a team of artists, a graphic artists on it, who would just keep coming up with logos until I found one I liked. So I got a logo I liked, um, and then started putting arms out, and that so that money. Um, was kind of ring fenced for the label, and as each project broke even, we would uh, put out another album again, and it's it's sort of got bigger and bigger. In the early days, I diversified a bit, so basically I was putting out albums if I liked them. Um, but what I came to realise was I needed to specialise in one particular genre because people would sort of get confused. So there's the danger that. Um, I, I could put out an album. So now I put out an album because people know it's prog rock and they know the type of albums I put out. There are, I've got 50 or 60 or even more people who will buy everything that we put out on Playing Groovy because they, they trust what we're going to do and they know it's a high-quality product. Um, whereas two years ago, an album could be coming out and, and they wouldn't know what genre it was. Mm -hmm. So it's been... The last two years has seen a sort of exponential rise in, in success of the label. Uh, such that um, I may have an ugly tax return this year. <laughs> <laughs> but it's taken a while. And it's it's a hobby. It's something, it, it's 
for me, it's really important to have something to do after I retire. Mm. Um, retiring, doing nothing. My my dad did that. I loved him dearly. He was a fantastic guy, um, but he just kind of drifted away in a weird way, and and uh, and I, I it was a salutary lesson really. So now it's very important to me to have something to do that I enjoy, and that's uh, that's what playing groovy is really. So any space left for flying than uh, private flying, recreational flying? I don't know. When I when I finished in the military and was going to the airlines. Um, a lot of a lot of people said to me, well, "What about if you find it really boring?" And I said, well, "You know," it, and I said, "Well, I haven't really thought about it." But if I found it really boring, I could always get a share in an aerobatic airplane or buy an aerobatic airplane and go and do air shows because I'd done that in the air force and really enjoyed it. Um, but I never felt the urge to do that because the because the, the airline flying was enough for me. And now. I don't, you know, it would, it might be. I used to love formation flight. I used to love, I used to love all of it, really. But um, it would be great to go and teach people to do that. But you know, I've kind of done it, and I don't really feel the need. So if I, if I find in a year's time there's a bit of a, you know, itch I want to scratch, then then maybe I will go and do it. But at the moment, I'm I'm not expecting to do that, because um, there's kind of no need. I, I kind of did everything really. Mm. It's, it's nice. It's a bit weird. It's a, it's a good place to be. But, and it's. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling very comfortable with with the, with retirement, the way retirement. Yeah, it, uh, it means you've you've done it right. I imagine that. The, I hope so. There's yeah. lots of people who are not in that in that position. I think uh, the, the one, and it's curious to say to hear you say about your father. Um, the one statistic, and maybe we talked about this on the phone, uh, sort of not 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 on record, but is, you know when pilots retire. You know, they, they, there's a couple of years and then they all start croaking. So, you know, keeping yourself busy yeah. and having another passion to keep you going sounds like a smart idea. Yeah, I think I, I think there is there is an element of that. And, uh, yeah. I mean, I have no idea. You know, actuarial tables will, I think, eventually come out and will favour long-haul pilots financially, I assume, because I, I think it's not just anecdotal. I think pilots do keel over young and mm -hmm. whether it is the eating at weird times sleeping at weird times or whether it's you know death rays from the stars and, and gamma rays and stuff I, I have no idea what it is or, or whether it is a thing but i think actuarial tables will change to reflect that mm -hmm. much much the way they do with smoking and non-smoking mm -hmm. that type of thing yeah. I, I think it's only a matter of time well chris thanks for your time really appreciate it good luck with uh playing crazy i'll put a a link in to the description of the video and um it's a bit of pleasure thank you